Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history? Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Hello and welcome everybody to this episode of Finance and History, the podcast of EABH, the European Association for Banking and Financial History. My name is Carmen Hofmann, I am Secretary General of EABH, and my guest today is Alexander Nützenadel. He is Professor of Social and Economic History at Humboldt University Berlin, and he is an expert in banking, debt and regulation in the 20th century and European fascism. Welcome, Alexander. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. So, in brief, what are we going to talk about today? I read your paper um, that's called Banking Regulation in the 20th Century, a Historical Index. What is it all about and why are we going to talk about how to regulate banks today? This is actually an ongoing research uh, project uh, that I started uh, together with a colleague, Tobias Scheib. We are looking on the evolution of banking regulation throughout the 20th century. And we actually reconstruct the banking regulation in 12 countries, um, including large industrial countries such as uh, the United States, Germany, Britain, or France, but also smaller countries such as Argentina. And this is actually the first quantitative project that looks on the evolution of banking regulation in the 20th century. I was surprised to learn that it's the first time somebody is doing a quantitative analysis, so not cross-country comparison. I mean, it's it's a big topic, in particular the last 20, 25 years. So yeah, we're, we're going to touch on bigger topics as well, right? Whether politics help or create crisis, actually, and whether governments or regulations should act or not act is, is one of the, the bigger questions underlying these talks, right? Because... Interest rates hikes, for example, can prevent bubbles that create financial instability in the end. However, at the same time, they can bring the risk of sinking the economy as a whole with severe political consequences. So before we talk about what regulation actually is aimed at and, and how to prevent financial crisis through banking regulation, tell us a bit about your sources. and Where do you find the information for your index and, and what's included in it? Well, this is indeed a very good question because we do have regulation indices for the past 20 years. The World Bank, since 2001, undertakes surveys and they send surveys to um, central bankers and experts all over the world and they reconstruct a very detailed regulation index for all countries on a yearly basis. But we don't have that kind of data for past uh, historical um, periods. We go back to the 1920s and we look at the legal literature, we look at studies from and reports from central banks, and uh, we look, look at other historical sources to understand different categories, different approaches of regulation in these 12 countries. And we have 10 categories, actually. We look at, for example, capital and uh, liquidity requirements of banks, interest rate regulations, consumer protection, entry barriers for foreign banks. We look at branching restrictions, the separation of credit and investment banking, capital controls, uh, supervision, and uh, the regulation of security markets. And then we give an index, we give a, a zero, one, or two score to every of these categories. So this is the kind of uh, work we do. 
And of course, it's very time consuming. And this is why we decided to do it on only on a five-year basis. We, we just take every five years um, to understand how regulation worked in these categories. And then we can also do an overall index to understand the overall trend in all these countries. Yeah, indeed, that that is a variety of archives and, and a huge amount of information you'll have to process to create this index. However, I think it will be very valuable for, for your colleagues as well in the future. So let's move on and talk about the historic context. Your work is about the 20th century, right? The 20th century was a roller coaster of financial highs and lows, to put it that way, marked by periods of economic prosperity and devastating downturns. The century began with the aftermath of the Gilded Age and witnessed the impact of the Great Depression in the 1930s, a catastrophic event that reshaped global economics. Post-World War II, the Bretton Woods Agreement established a new international monetary system, fostering stability but paving the way for later challenges. The latter half of the century saw the rise of globalization, the dot-com boom, and ultimately the financial crisis of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, leaving a lasting imprint on the economic landscape. From a regulatory perspective, how would you describe the period of your work, the 20th century? Which periods or years are you giving particular attention? It is interesting to see that indeed financialization increases enormously in the 20th century and also cross-border activities And the role of banks increase. You mentioned the crisis, the political division in the era of the two world wars and even in the Cold War era. And the interesting thing is that in this kind of geopolitical and geoeconomic divided world, financial transactions need banks who do international intermediation. And this is why banks become so important for financial activities on the one side, and on the other side, they also grow, they become more involved in risky activities, and this increases the necessity to regulate banks and to control their activities. This is something that we see all over the 20th century, and it starts already in 1907 in the US after the financial crisis, and then particularly after World War I, when we have that wave of inflation, the end of the gold standard, financial instability, combined uh, with the rise of financial international activities and also imbalances. And governments all over the world in the 1920s start to strengthen central banks and to introduce new forms of legal supervision to commercial banks in this situation. This is the starting point of our project. And then comes, of course, the banking crisis uh, and the Great Depression, late 1920s and early 1930s, where especially in the US and Germany and uh, other European countries, bank runs arise and uh, high financial instability creates new problems. And in all these countries in the 1930s, new bank laws and regulations are introduced against this background. And the interesting thing is that in the 1930s, unlike in earlier period, there are no private sector arrangements. It's not that banks help other banks to get out of uh, the crisis. So governments play an increasing role. We have more nationalization of banks, if you think of Germany or if you think of Austria. So the state comes into play, and this makes regulation uh, very important in the 1930s. And the wave of financial regulation of the 1930s continues 
after 1945. In most countries, the bank laws that are introduced in the 1930s continue to exist until the 1970s. Only then we have initiatives to deregulate financial markets, especially in the United Kingdom or um, then also in the US. Then we have new offshore financial centers such as um, the Bahrain, um, the Cayman Islands, but also Luxembourg comes into play as a financial center with low-level banking regulation. So this characterizes the development of the 1970s and 80s. And then, of course, after the financial crisis of 2007-8, we have a new wave of re-regulation, which particularly looks on establishing international standards and coordinating banking regulation over the world. Because so far, this has been mainly done by national governments, And often this kind of national regulation in a global context has not been very effective. It's one of the key points you're saying that markets start to integrate. However, regulation remains a relatively national matter in in this environment, though that after the 1970s becomes more and more deregulated with as well cheap mainstream trading, the marketability of many products. In your paper, you identify um, regulatory cycles. Can you explain that a little bit further than you already did, that we had until the 1930s this relatively regulated environment that then changed to the opposite after the 1970s, and then again after 2018? In general, we can see a pattern, a pro-cyclical pattern, uh, which means that Financial regulation, if you look over its evolution in history, follows a cyclical movement in periods of busts. Usually we have an increasing level of regulation and decreasing level of regulation in times of booms. And this has far-reaching implications for financial stability because it means that regulation becomes less effective and leads to excessive risk-taking of banks in periods where we would need more regulation. So this kind of pro-cyclical evolution is uh, really a problem. We have to learn something from history. If we look back to the 20th century, where we have that long regulatory cycle that starts in the 1920s and ends in the 1970s. And many of the problems, the financial problems that we have since the 1980s depend on this pro-cyclical evolution. So regulators have to apply a completely different approach. They have to think uh, in a counter-cyclical perspective, and they have to increase regulation in times of financial boom, and not the other way around, as it often happens in history. In your paper, you refer to recent distinctive literature that classifies varieties of capitalism. So we have liberal market economies versus coordinated market economies and countries in between. What does this mean for for the respective frameworks of regulation. And is this distinction of variety still valid or should we rather look at political economy of regulation instead? First of all, the large literature on the varieties of capitalism has not very much uh, focused on finance. This uh, is indeed um, astonishing because of course, financial markets are so important for capitalism. And We have that distinction between more bank-based financial system, especially regarding uh, continental Europe, and then we have the more 
market-based financial systems such as the US and the, the British financial system. And I think that distinction between market-based and bank-based financial system and the different political approaches towards the economy that we have in that variety of capitalism, this literature explains a lot of different regulatory systems. For example, in the US or in Great Britain, banks remain in private hands. They're not nationalized. We have a strong, very strong regulation and supervision in the US. If you think of the division between credit and investment banking uh, since the 1930s and all these other very strong regulations, but there's no trend to nationalize banks. In Europe, in continental Europe, if you look to France, or to Italy, and also to Germany, we have a large public financial sector, not only regarding saving banks, but also special banks in the public domain, investment banks, banks for medium-term credit, and others play an increasing role in the 20th century. So we have different approaches of regulating financial markets, which depend on the specific form of economic system and the varieties of capitalism. But this is usually not used to explain banking regulation. However, the pattern becomes very complicated over time because there's no clear structure. It's not one model that you can apply. It's a very mixed system. There are some limits of this comparative approach, which you rightly stated in your question. And indeed, it is perhaps more interesting and more compelling for future research to apply a more political economy approach to empirical history of regulation. It is indeed very interesting because this argument goes uh, two ways, right? I quote something you mentioned from Eichen Green, who says, a country's trajectory within the embedded capitalism after World War II highly depended on institutional legacy. So that's a very strong argument for the argument that Regulation often is much more path-dependent than actually reacting to what is happening in financial markets. The second argument I thought was very interesting you make in your paper is that regulatory compromises often in times of war, when rulers seek financial support for war efforts are, or fiscal stimulation, so they may grant banks monopolies and other privileges, and these are then as well used by populist movements or authoritarian regimes that frequently form political alliances with financial agents. So what you show in your paper is a, a clear connection between the strictness of regulation and the form of government. So I was wondering, can you um, explain that a little bit more to our listeners? It is clear that strong government very often aims at a, at a control of financial markets. And this uh, is very clearly visible in the 1920s and 30s, where you can see that the first countries who really introduced very strict regulations are Italy and Japan in the 1920s. They also have some financial problems, some financial crisis in that early time. And they introduced far-reaching banking laws already in the late 1920s. So before the large wave of banking regulation comes in countries such as the United States or other countries as well. So there's a clear indicator that authoritarian government leads to more regulation. And then if you look at Germany uh, in the 1930s, you can see that very clearly. But also democratic countries, for example, the US or Britain or France, have a strong populist flavor in the 1930s when they 
discuss the role of commercial banks, of investment banks, very often combined with anti-Semitism, with populists, claims against international finance. And this creates an environment for very strict regulations, often also for the nationalization of banks. So banking regulation and populism is not restricted to right-wing authoritarian uh, dictatorships, but you find a similar evolution also in democratic countries. Another factor is that many bank laws were introduced in the 1940s under German occupation. For example, if you look at France or at Luxembourg or other countries, actually the German occupation forces brought banking regulation in these countries. And these new laws, for example, the 1941 law in, um, in France, they continued to exist even after the end of the war. Of course, there were some adaptions, but the laws created at that time often continued to be in force uh, for a long time in these countries as well. So the impact of authoritarian rule is quite visible in many countries, even beyond the countries that had authoritarian regimes. Right. And I think there is this other argument you follow where you say that it is often argued that financial actors per se, they strive for more liberalization, in particular since the 1970s. However, there are at the same time strong incentives to protect domestic markets against foreign competitors until today, right? So the banks as well can benefit from regulatory heterogeneity by shifting their activities between different legislations. You follow this up saying that, for example, after the Great Depression, most countries faced turmoil in one way or the other. But then legislation was more pronounced in some countries than in others. How can you explain that? This, uh, I think, largely depends uh, the fact that governments after 1945, in a completely different economic environment, use regulation for their economic policy. For example, if you think of France, France begins economic planning in the 1950s. They use the credit banks to implement industrial development programs based on long-term national plans. And regulation is very useful for them. Also, they use nationalized central banks, which are totally dependent on the governments or the financial ministries in these countries. So regulation created to protect the economy from financial crisis in the 1930s is used in a completely different way in the 1950s and 60s uh, in the context of, of economic policy in some countries. In other countries, this is less important. For example, in Germany, in the social market economy, banks were not so much involved in state planning, even though, of course, there was a close cooperation between the banking system and the industrial sector in the 1950s and 60s. But it was not so much based on state activities and regulation. And this is why, for example, in West Germany in the 1950s and 60s, we already have a strong movement of deregulation. This goes completely in a different direction that we find in countries such as Italy or in France, or even in the US, where regulation remains at a very high level in the 1950s and 60s. Germany stands out, it deregulates its financial system, and then we have a movement of re-regulation. 
in the 1970s. So something that again goes against what we find in countries uh, such as Great Britain, where financial markets are deregulated. And of course, here we have also specific moments or, or events that shape the regulation debate. For example, we have the crisis of the Herstadt Bank in 1974 in Germany, which makes uh, regulation more important again, which we don't have in other countries in the same way. So there are national differences that we have to consider and that we consider also in this banking index. And these differences are important also to understand the general development of global finance and the instability of global finance. You mentioned that we have that kind of regulatory arbitrage between different national financial systems. And this increases in the 1970s. Banks move their part of their business to places where we have low level of regulation, for example, in Luxembourg or in Britain or in the other offshore financial centers, we have a, an emergent financial activity. And of course, this makes the world financial markets very fragile and creates new risks. Yeah, it's certainly important to, to remember that when looking at regulation in a global context, the high regulation in the US, as you said, and the increasingly low regulation in Germany after 1970, they are not fully consistent with the traditional theory of varieties of capitalism. And given that those two outliers, if you want to call them that way, are of the biggest economies at the time, we have to look very closely at them, at different country cases. And as well, I think that leads to an interesting question of the two sides of regulation. One side being that regulation protects from the externalities of financial markets and protects the financial system and um, the governments that have to step in if there's turmoil. But at the same time, it is about how can governments prevent themselves from the creation of socially destructive situations, right? But let's move on a bit further to how banking regulation has been organized. Basically, what you line out in your paper is there is structural regulation, meaning the institutional architecture of the banking sector, and as well, prudential regulation. Would you like to uh, tell us a bit about the concept of macroprudential regulation in the realm of financial regulation? Yeah, indeed. This is very important because, of course, regulation can have very different goals, can uh, look mainly at protectors of investors or Depositors, um, if you think of deposit insurances, which played a huge role already in the 1930s in the US, but you could also argue, well, financial markets have a strong impact on the rest of the economy and also on the state because we have that kind of spillover effects. Banking crises usually rapidly spill over to other sectors of the economy. They affect the whole global system. And this is why financial stability must be considered a public good. This is more or less a consensus among economists that financial stability is a very important thing, not only for the financial sector, but also for the whole economy and the whole society. And this is where the concept of macroprudential regulation comes into play, that we have to protect the whole system, given that we have very large banks and the banks have grown so, so much during the 20th century, it is often only one bank 
that leads to a melting down of the financial system. And we have to find a regulatory framework which protects the whole economy from these kinds of bank runs and, and insolvencies. And I think this is something that is already discussed in the 1930s, but then plays an increasing role in the regulation debates since the 1970s. And here, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision comes into play. It is established in the 1970s as a kind of organization to think about global financial markets and how can we reach more internationalized, more homogeneous form of regulation for banks who, of course, are not limited to national regulatory frameworks they move all over the world and how can we how can we find an international framework to regulate financial markets this is something that characterizes debates since the 1970s and macroprudential regulation is at the core of this kind of discussion however the first basel agreement comes only in 1988 and we see that there's a long time it takes a very long time to coordinate international banking regulation. And until today, this remains a problem. I think we have resolved this problem here for Europe. After the financial crisis, we have a very good and strong banking regulation and banking coordination now on the European level. I think this has made financial markets in Europe safer. But still, uh, we don't know what happens in the next years because we have always a kind of race between regulators and financial actors. Financial actors make innovations. We have financial innovations which try to circumvent the regulations that are introduced. And this already happened in history. If you think of the euro-dollar market in the 1950s and 60s, this was exactly a financial innovation which aimed at circumvent existing regulations. And it did it very successfully. And I think this will happen again in the next years. So regulators have to be very keen to understand what kind of financial innovations are introduced by banks or by other financial actors. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's constant race between innovation and, and regulation. You may know the work of William Quinn and John Turner about boom and bust. So they talk about technological bubbles and political bubbles. And they say if, if a bubble or uh, financial um, exuberance is, is fueled by bank debt rather than by capital markets, then it's not so difficult to prevent that by limiting the growth of credit that forces banks to hold large liquid reserves and direct bank credit away from speculative activity. So we talked about this earlier, that regulation follows innovation in a way, and at the same time, it follows a boom-bust cycle, financial markets with largely suboptimal effects on financial stability. What would you suggest? How can financial history insight help to break that cycle? I think our research shows that there is a problem. And I think that regulators have to understand, and the his historical view will help them, that they have to turn their perspective completely around. They have to provide a counter-cyclical approach to regulate financial markets. And they have to be quicker as financial innovators, and they really have to think of a counter-cyclical regulation pattern. So could you give like a, a practical example of what, what that would mean for regulation in, in 2024? The problem, of course, for regulation from a European perspective is that they look on the European banking market and on European banks. And they perhaps do not consider sufficiently 
that banks move away from Europe, or at least that banks in Europe lose their position in the international financial system. And this makes, of course, the European banking regulation less effective. In some way, you have to take into account these massive changes of financial markets and to perhaps introduce new forms of regulation that in some way consider this kind of shift in the banking activities, which are also embedded in a new geoeconomic and geopolitical situation. The risks that we have in the next years are not the same risks that we had in the 2000 years. The financial crisis was a financial crisis. It was not a geopolitical crisis, not mainly at least. Now, in our days, these uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic risks are much higher than the real financial market risks. So the situation is completely new. And I think regulation has to take into consideration that this risk structure has really changed and will change in the next years. Before we conclude, I wanted to quickly talk about uh, Argentina, because Argentina is part of your index as well as the only country in Latin America, I think. Given that there has been this recent election and, and Argentina is a special case in, in the economy. So how is it special in, in your index? Well, the Argentinian case is in so far interesting because we have on the one side very international activities from international banks, for example, also from German banks, Deutsche Bank and other German banks were very active in Argentina since the 1920s and 30s. So financial market integration of Argentina was for many years on a very high level on the one side, and they had huge capital imports to finance their industrial development for a long time. And then came this long period of financial regulation since the 1930s. And again, an opening of financial markets since the 1970s and 80s. Then we have the debt crisis and so on. So there's a, a wave of regulation and deregulation of foreign sovereign debt crisis and domestic crisis. This makes Argentina a very, very difficult case. It makes it a, the, perhaps the most complicated cases in our index because it does not follow a very clear pattern. And of course, it is interesting to see what happens now. They have an agenda of liberalization, of course, of, of, of less government, of more private initiative on the one side. But on the other side, they have also the weakness of the Argentinian monetary system. And it's not so clear in what direction they will go regarding the financial system. I hope that they will understand that it's very fragile, that the Argentinian banking system needs some, some form of regulation and some form of safety to come through the difficult times that we probably will have in Argentina in the next years. I agree. It's it's as well. It's a long legacy, right, of turmoil and a, a long tradition of high inflation. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there is a, a government in place now that actually has a chance to change something. So, in conclusion, with history perspective, if you look at what banking regulation is trying to do, is there any setup that is better in achieving these goals? I mean, in history. Financial crises, they are common in, in monarchies and full franchise democracies in every government. So what's the best setup to regulate banks? This is a very interesting point. And this is perhaps something that we can find from our index. If you have a mixture of different instruments, this works better than if you just have one 
one approach um, in your banking regulation system. And then, of course, we can see that there's always an incentive also for governments to not really make regulation very effective. For example, when governments own banks, they usually don't really apply regulatory rules because, you know, this means that their own income is affected. For example, you see that in Italy or you see that also in France in the 1960s and 70s. And I don't think that this is really something that makes the banking system more safe. And on the other hand, I mean, there's always a tra trade-off between efficiency because financial markets play an important role. I mean, finance is important for our economy. So it must be efficient. And on the other hand, you have a certain level of safety. And there you have to find an equilibrium between safety on the one side and efficiency on the other side. So I think it's very difficult to find that equilibrium. But this is something that politicians have to find out. Yeah, right. I mean, it's the, uh, this room to maneuver in between because as much as we do need regulation, we do need innovation in the financial sector as well. I think the important factor is to really look at what risk means. And as well that, I mean, risk in finances and many other um, areas of life comes with rewards, right? So usually, or often, the higher the risk, the higher the rewards. Though, however, the price of the risk should be attached to those gaining the rewards as well. And I think that's one of the main tasks politics and regulation has to make sure that the price for the risk is paid by those who get the gains for the risk as well. I think that's that's one of the important roles governments have and have fared and sometimes in history better than in others. And I think in particular in the 2018 crisis, there have been many researchers and scholars um, saying that there has been a, a misalignment and those who won, they did not really take the responsibility for the risks they took. So in, in today's world, if you take your history experience, what should regulation, for example, do about algorithmic trading or the rise of passive asset management? Is there a lesson to be taken? This is a very interesting question because we have actually a new for a new innovation in our financial system. And more than that, we have actors who cannot clearly be identified, who is really responsible for specific decisions. And this is something that, of course, for regulation creates enormous problems. But of course, we had similar situations and innovations already in, in the past. I mean, we already had financial con constructions where, where it was not clear who was really in charge of. I think here, again, we need, need a lot of transparency on the one side, what really happens. We need also a lot of research. And we also need ethical standards, which are applied on financial actors. What is next in your research? Where, where is your research headed from here? Are you continuing the, the work on the index or are you moving on to a different topic? Well, first of all, we still have to use the index for specific analysis. For example, what we want to do is to understand how regulatory arbitrage really worked in the 1970s, 80s and 1990s. So how regulation increased uh, regulatory arbitrage and how banks use that very fragmented uh, regulatory framework to increase their business and to increase their income. This is something that we have to show empirically. And there we use also balance sheet data from banks, or we also look at single banks, how they really use regulation for their own interests. I'm also interested in a 
project that looks on financial stability and regulation. Here we also look at balance sheet data from different banks. So in that field, a lot has to be done. And the regulation index helps us to do that kind of work on a very solid empirical basis. Beyond that, I'm planning a new project uh, that looks on the role of authoritarian regimes and uh, economic organization in the 20th century in a comparative way. This is uh, more a book project that I'm planning entitled From Mussolini to Modi, Economic Authoritarianism in the 20th Century. And banking regulation will play a, an important role, but I will also look on other fields of the economy to make this project an interesting and innovative project. So uh, last question. Do you have a favorite financial history book? I don't know if I have a book. I mean, there's an interesting project conducted by Yusuf Cassis, who was a guest researcher here in Berlin half a year ago on the role of managers, financial managers in financial crisis, what they learned from financial crisis. And I think this is something that I find uh, intriguing, how past experiences are implemented into decision makers of banking. We don't really know how bankers operate, what their strategies are. I think uh, banks are still a black box for many of us. We look at balance sheets, we look at their activities, but the decision-making of bank managers is something that still needs to be explored. And I think this is a very interesting project. Very interesting. Thank you very much for presenting or sharing your research with us. Um, and until next time. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international, non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.